The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 28. Glory to you, O Lord. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, to the end of the age. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. It is Holy Trinity Sunday, which, depending on your perspective, bears either the exciting or intimidating or boring distinction of being the only day on the church calendar set aside to remember not a particular event or person, but rather a particular doctrine, that being the entirely unique to Christianity doctrine of the Holy Trinity. These also, of course, for all of us, have felt like very unique days in our lifetimes, not just because of the social and racial unrest and violence, which we have seen, of course, before, and by of course I mean shame on us, for how often we as a nation keep writing new chapters to this story when in fact we have the resources and the ability to write new stories but we apparently lack the courage and the compassion and the will and the belief that liberty and justice truly are for all. And so those stories this week are stories we have seen before, from Martin Luther King to Rodney King to Michael Brown to name just a few, but now in this case, in Charles Floyd's case, all of that is set on top of this not yet ended, George Floyd's case, this not yet ended pandemic, all of which added together make these days seem like nothing we've seen before to such a degree that surreal doesn't even feel like a surreal enough word for it all. I'm going to try, and this could very well prove to be a fool's errand, I'm going to try nevertheless to try to say a few words about that all. Starting with this unique day on the Christian calendar set aside for the unique doctrine of the Holy Trinity, that being Christianity's attempt somehow to articulate its belief that we cannot speak accurately of our belief in the one and only God we do believe there is in less than three sentences. Sentences which confess our belief that we have experienced and do experience the activity of God and the presence of God in three unique but nevertheless still related and somehow perhaps even overlapping ways as we have experienced and do experience our one and only God at work in the world and made known in the world as God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, and the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. All of which is to say that when Christians confess our faith, 
We confess that we can't talk entirely about the entirety of the oneness of God without using some plural nouns and verbs. That word Trinity is not actually found in the Bible. In fact, there was a time when the word Trinity wasn't actually a word, for it is a word that was created by early Christians as they attempted to understand and articulate what is found in the Bible, which clearly does say that there is one and only one God, but clearly also in New Testament and Old says in various ways that there is some manner or another of pluralness to God's singleness. And so at the very end of Matthew's Gospel, which we just read, Jesus sends his disciples out into the world to make disciples of all nations in the world by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so too, at the very end of 2 Corinthians, which we also just heard a moment ago, Paul finishes what has been a painful letter to a church partisanly and socially and theologically divided on all kinds of fronts by saying for the first time on record something Christians have been saying all over the world as they have gathered for worship ever since, that being the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Notice that, the unity of the church in Corinth, which at that time was plurally fractured, is the unity Paul blessed upon them in the name of the God who is somehow plurally one. The plural nature of God's singular oneness is less explicitly Trinitarian but can nevertheless be pointed to in our Old Testament reading from Genesis today where we heard, as Pam said, the first of the Bible's two creation stories where first of all it says that when God the Creator was creating, the wind of God was blowing over the waters of creation. And of course we remember, don't we, what we talked about last week, that being that the phrase wind of God could be every bit as accurately translated, and many say would be better here translated as spirit of God. And then Genesis says, too, that God then did God's creating by speaking God's word, which gets some of us thinking of John's gospel in the New Testament, which begins by saying, in the beginning was the word. But John then goes on to say that the word became flesh to dwell among us, which, of course, is his version of the incarnation and birth of God the Son. And then right also there in Genesis 1, a little later, is that really curious verse. I mean, did you notice it? God says, let us make humankind in our image. And so in the image of God, which is here explicitly described with a plural pronoun, us, God creates humankind in God's image. And humankind, too, is then described in plural form, male and female. I say again, Christians confess that you can't entirely talk about the entirety of the oneness of the one and only God there is without using some plural nouns and verbs. 
And to do that, Christians did invent a word by combining the prefix tri and the root word unity and then kind of smunching them together to get this new word trinity, three and one together in the same word, attempting to encompass the truth of a threeness and a oneness together, two in the same God. And so we have the doctrine of the trinity, which perhaps to many of us has sounded at times almost esoterically silly. Except for what? Except that many of us, if not all of us, I dare say, would nevertheless also say that we can speak of times and places when, in company with God's creation, we have felt ourselves drawn powerfully into communion with creation's creator. Can you picture the places where you have known that? And if we are singers, we might then even have sung at that time, this is my father's world, the birds their carols raise, the morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. And then too, we can speak of times and places when we have felt ourselves drawn powerfully into communion with the love of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of life with God and the foreverness of life with God. And what drew us into that communion was that one whom we've known from a manger to a cross and an empty tomb. And if we were singers then, maybe we sang, my song is love unknown. My Savior's love for me, love to the loveless shown, that they might lovely be. And then, too, we can speak of times, many of us, when we have felt that God was as near to us as the air as we breathe. And in those times, there were those times that that didn't even seem like a metaphor. It seemed like the Spirit of God. And if we were singers then, maybe we sang, Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew, that I may love all thou dost love and do what thou wouldst do. In our heads, no doubt, we don't know how to make complete sense of this doctrine of the Trinity, but in our hearts and in the music of our hearts, I want to suggest that a lot of us do in some ways know and experience the God of whom the doctrine of the Trinity seeks to speak. And so we have that word Trinity, which we did invent, not because it makes complete sense to us, but because rather it makes some sense of the ways in which the God, who of course is so beyond our senses and sensibilities, has, it sure seems to us, come to us to be known and experienced by us. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. You can't, the doctrine says. As you can't, I think we in many of our experiences would say, speak of the oneness of the one and only God there is by using only single person grammar. You must, the doctrine says, and most of us I imagine have in some way or another experienced, to speak of the fullness of the oneness of God, 
use grammar, nouns and verbs, which are both singular and plural. All of which is finally to say that the oneness of the one and only God there is cannot in the end fully be defined doctrinally, but can only be defined relationally. Which of course, when the Bible's the one doing the defining, means that it can only finally be defined by love. So, humans, you and I and all, created by a one God who exists as a threefold relationship of perfect love, are, the book of Genesis says, created for three relationships of their love, of love of our own. Three relationships which, and I don't even think I'm overstating to say this, three relationships which the book of Genesis would define as the purpose of human life. Those being, number one, a relationship of love and trust with God our Creator. And number two, a relationship of love and care for God's creation. And three, a relationship of love and love for one another. The God whose existence is defined as a relationship created humans for relationship with God, with the earth, with one another. Tragically, unfortunately, in describing the relationship with the earth, Genesis uses two words which by the time they got translated into English became words which have been oh so terribly misunderstood and therefore oh so awfully abused. After creating humans as plural, male and female, God says to the male and the female, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing. Subdue the earth and have dominion over it, God says, which humans have taken to be words which bless humanity's exploitation of creation as though it exists for us. Without getting into the weeds of Hebrew vocabulary and grammar, let me just say this, that is exactly not what those words mean. Yes, it does say, and I imagine there are those these days who might take exception to this, but it nevertheless does say that humans created in the image of God do have an elevated status in God's creation. But that status is not, it is precisely not the status of being gods over creation, but rather the status of looking out for the interests and purposes of the God of us and creation. All of which is to say that exercising the dominion, Genesis says, God entrusts to humans is not about exploiting and dominating our earth, but rather stewarding, respecting, loving, caring for God's earth. Being green, in other words, is not something we strive for because of our politics. It is something we strive for because of our faith. Speaking of humanity defining its relationships in the language of domination rather than the language of love. God the Creator as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exists in the plurality of a relationship 
with God's self and created humankind for relationship with one another by creating humankind plural, as in one but different. The differences of male and female are the differences mentioned explicitly in Genesis, but this is hardly an exhaustive list. And the God of creation summarized it all in its differentness by saying this, it is good. People of God, we must confess what is not good. Humans have not been good enough. Indeed, we at times and again have been shamefully unfaithful in our role as stewards of the diversity of one another, male and female, gay and straight, black and white. All of those relationships and more are relationships in which humans again and again and ad nauseum again keep defining with the language and practices of exploitation and coercive power what the God of creation, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, means us to define and care for with the language and practices and power of love. Reconciling in Christ. Me too. I can't breathe. Liberty and justice for all. These are not cries around which we rally because of our politics. These are cries around which we can't not rally because of our faith. Finally, a few months ago I posted some thoughts critical of the president on my Facebook page. An acquaintance from high school commented that my thoughts were grossly inappropriate, that I needed as a faith leader, quote, to stay in my lane rather than delving into politics. I couldn't disagree more. I can't imagine being a person whose deepest convictions those being in the convictions of faith did not reach to and influence every area of life by all means, including by all means political choices. I do, of course, understand and seek to honor the fact that, that as a pastor uh, there are boundaries to consider, although I consider those boundaries to be located in different places depending on whether I'm on my personal Facebook page or Gloria Day's Facebook page or Gloria Day's pulpit. That said, Monday evening at 6.30 prior to Washington DC's declared curfew and a few hours after a conference call telling governors they were weak jerks for not dominating the protesters in their street militarily. The President of the United States had law enforcement officers clear a peaceful protest 
on a street outside of the White House using gas canisters, flash grenades, rubber bullets, and physical force so that he then could walk across the street to be photographed holding up a Bible as he stood in front of St. John's Episcopal Church. When asked if it was his Bible, he said, it's a Bible. Sisters and brothers, I cannot be silent. I've thought about being silent. I cannot be silent. It was awful. On so many levels, I won't even go there. But I will go here. Mr. President, it's not a Bible. It's the Bible. It is our sacred text. We struggle with it for sure. And we wrestle with it all over the place. But we cherish it. And if all you're going to do is hold it up as though it were a political prop, then, sir, stay out of my lane. You do not get to hold up a Bible while the smell of your tear gas and pepper spray still linger around you. You hold up the Bible by striving after the desires of the one whose spirit, whose breath, brings it to life and by striving after the desires of the one, the Word made flesh, who comes to meet us in its pages. He, in its pages, says, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what is right. And if you want to be great, greater than all, <laughs> greater the greatest in the history of this nation, then be a servant to all. Don't lift yourself up to be exalted by others. Humble yourself to lift up others. Amen.